So as you guys know, uh, during this holiday season, Charlie and I decided to talk movies. A um, little bit of low-hanging fruit, but also it's fun. It's the holidays. Um, I know everybody really wants to hear my deep dive on Eritrea, but you know uh, it's the holidays. So we're trying to lighten things up and do something a little fun. Um, last week, we did Red Dawn. So that was Charlie's pick. This week, we did one of my all-time favorite movies, Zulu from 1964, the very first movie featuring a young Michael Caine and uh, a movie that honestly I tear up at every time, Um, sometimes at different points, but uh, by the end of the movie, I will have had a couple of teary moments uh, every time out. As a result, I only watch it every three to five years. So Charlie indulged me um, and we talked about it and I don't think we went on too long. Hopefully we didn't. I don't think we did. I think you guys will enjoy it as much as we did. Uh, we tried to draw a lot of parallels and follow a couple rabbit holes and all that, but it was a great time. Um, I really appreciated being able to talk about it. Um, my The amount of emotion I have for Zulu made me exceptionally less articulate than I would have liked to have been. But uh, that aside, I think it'll be fun. So hopefully you guys enjoy it too, and happy holidays to everybody. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal, try to make a little order out of chaos. Of course, this week is one of our holiday specials. So we are going to have a much smaller roundtable. It's just going to be Charlie Faint and myself, and we're talking about movies. Now, last time I've, I got a little too casual, so I skipped right over Charlie's bio because I just assume everybody knows who Charlie is at this point, um, considering he's hosted and been on the show multiple times. But for those that don't know, Charlie Faint is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He's the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point, and he has previous assignments throughout conventional and special operations, including JSOC, seven deployments in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea, three master's degrees, currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, on the board of the Veterans Repertory Theater, and owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me back on the show. Well, considering that the last time you were on was about three minutes ago, um, <laughs> it was a pleasure. I did a thorough review uh, and it was like, it's worth having Charlie right back on. So listen, so obviously we're, for those that missed our episode, which you would have heard last week, uh, this is all happening because time is a flat circle and we are defying the space-time continuum. We are recording these in bulk. Uh, Charlie and I had some time that we could set aside to just crank out some episodes um, for you guys, because clearly we don't uh, have the capability of sitting with our families and enjoying the holidays and doing podcasts. So you will probably be hearing this episode. If I had to guess, you're probably listening to it and it's on or about the new year um, or right before New Year's. Uh, I haven't really looked at a calendar, as you can tell, but um, we're glad you're with us and we'll make this as entertaining, fun, and maybe not a full hour, but we'll have a good time with our subject, which is 
movies. And specifically, this week, we're talking about my favorite military movie of all time, which is Zulu. And hopefully, if you haven't seen it, you should. And if your kids haven't seen it, hopefully they can. I'm not going to lie to you. It is hard to find Zulu now. It is not as readily available as it used to be. Um, I downloaded it onto my phone and my computer a little while ago, and those downloads still remain. So I can see it. But I noticed when I tried to get back on, I think it was YouTube or one of the other platforms, you can't find Zulu anymore. Um, Charlie, I'll put you on the spot. When was the last time you saw Zulu? Let's see, probably on one of my deployments, Chris. So it was okay. 2009 or sooner. Wow. But it's a, it's a, it's a perennial favorite. It's a great movie. Yeah. It, from the sixties, but still pretty popular today. And I guess one of the things I liked about it was it portrayed both sides. Well, there's clearly a favorite in this one, but neither the Zulus nor the British come off as necessarily the bad guys in this show. Yeah. It's so let me first address the, 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 controversy if there is controversy and I, th- I think as with everything in 2021 there is um so i'll address that first and then we can dive into the merits of the film um i, I think where zulu has run into problems is that it's depicting a battle in the 1880s between a very small british element and a large zulu um army and unfortunately for 2021 uh, Zulus happen to be black. So that makes it uncomfortable for everybody, but it shouldn't be because as you said, Charlie, it, what I love about the movie, uh, um, as a direct rebuttal to any criticism of it is that it is a completely honest assessment. It doesn't mean it's accurate assessment, but it's an honest assessment, um, based off of firsthand, uh, letters and descriptions of the battle from both sides. Um, the actual history of the battle that the movie is based on is obviously more complicated than what the movie portrays, but, uh, the Zulu warriors were actually known and, um, had a lot of connections with the Boer, with the, the Dutch, uh, community in South Africa or in, uh, you know, well, back then it would have been kind of South African areas, but, uh, Namibia, Botswana, uh, Lesotho, that whole Swaziland area. Um, and so they were known. So they're both sides were known. And um, the underlying takeaway of the movie is really uh, the warriorship of both sides and that they fight each other as peer forces, which makes the British victory, spoiler alert, uh, so compelling because the Zulus are not simply um, out of their mind. They're crafty. They um, have interesting strategies, uh, innovative tactics and, um, are, and are well-regarded as warriors and, and are, and specifically that they are a, who is it? Was a patent that said the, you know, uh, I, I have to respect my enemy. You know, I have to kill my enemy because I respect him. If I didn't think he could kill me, I wouldn't respect him enough to shoot him. What, what's the statement that the quote that I'm butchering, Charlie? I don't know. I'll have to think about that one. I, I let, let, let me let me let me try to say it better because because it it uh, I really garbled that. Um, but I think it was Patton or MacArthur, and I know in their graves they would be flipping out that I'm confusing the two of them. But uh, one of them said something to the effect of, "Oh, that was it. The highest form of respect I can give my enemy is to kill him 
because it means I deem him worthy and uh, uh, worthy enough of a th- as a threat that he has to be killed, and there's no other way to deal with him. That's a, a less garbled paraphrasing of what they said, and I think that's uh, very much at the core of Zulu um, that they uh, that both sides respect each other, and in fact, the British victory, as it were, in the movie because it's not a complete victory, but what really seals it um, is that the Zulu warriors who after wave and wave and wave of them have been rebuffed in trying to overrun the British camp, uh, retreat to the Hills and give off a war cry. And the British soldiers look at each other and go, Oh my God, they're going to come at us again. And the one Boer soldier, um, Dutch fighter that's with mercenary that's with them looks and says, you idiots, they're saluting you. They're giving you a cry and saying that they, they salute you as fellow warriors. And then the Zulus fade off out of the horizon. And, and I'm not going to lie. I cry at that movie. I tear up every time at the end um, <laughs> with that. I am a complete baby when it comes to that movie. And I, I can psychoanalyze myself a little bit as to, as to think why, but did it have that connection to for you as well, Charlie, or because you were watching it deployed, did everybody have to hide their tears behind uh, allergies or something like that? I'm more like cans of, of baby-sized rippets. But, <laughs> but yeah, this is a, another great movie. I'm glad you picked this one for us to talk about. For one thing, there are no victims here. Both sides, everyone in this show, for the most part, is a, is a warrior. The Zulus were imperialistic, as was the British Empire. So there's no innocent victims. These are co-combatants meeting on the battlefield. And that part you mentioned at the end, very poignant. I don't think it's historically accurate, if I remember correctly, that the Zulus dissipated because a relief column was on the way. Nonetheless, the impact of that on the movie reinforced the fact we talked about we talked about earlier about both sides being well represented, nobody being a bad guy, just two groups that can't work it out politically. So they had to sort it out with spears and, and rifles. And my understanding, if I remember correctly, Chris, the Zulus had some rifles in this battle they captured from a, an earlier British force they wiped out. So that, right. that made an interesting twist. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I guess I'll, I'll, for those that aren't aware of, of it, I'll, I'll just give a brief, probably should have done this up front, but I'll give a brief thumbnail sketch of what is supposed to have happened um, or what this incident is, what the movie's based on, which is that the Zulus um, ambushed a large British contingent at, if I remember the name right, Islington, and wiped them out just about. Um, there were almost no survivors, and that's historically accurate. And then at Rourke's Drift, which was this little encampment, um, I forget how far away, but but far away from, from the main body, um, there was just a small group of engineers, of British Army engineers, trying to uh, build a support base. So these were not, um, the, you know, these were not infantrymen. They were engineers, but they were soldiers, um, and uh, and they realized that they were, a, uh, I think you even say this in the movie, they were a pebble waiting for a wildly rushing river to come sweeping through um, the area and just overrun them, and, uh, and that is all accurate, and it's accurate that they um, defended their encampment successfully, and I think there were something like 20 or 25 um I, I don't know what their version of the medal of honor is but basically 25 of those 
given out. Charlie, do you remember what that's called? Do you remember? What I think those? it's Vict- Victoria's Cross. Victoria Cross. Thank you. Yes. Um, and so, so it was. It, it was a. Uh, uh, you know, the the main elements of the movie are very historically accurate. The geopolitical backstory behind it is is not, um, you know, as clear cut. And I I won't bore everybody with you know, that whole backstory and, and an analysis of British Boer Zulu relationships in the 1880s because um, we will become a niche podcast incredibly quickly if I do. So, um, to me, the biggest takeaway that I have when I watch that movie is to me that movie is an exercise. It shows the value of discipline. And I think the first, I saw it when I was a kid and I just liked the shooting and all that. I think the first time I saw it again as more of an adult was in the early 2000s. So Iraq was spinning up. Um, Afghanistan had been going on a little bit. And certainly the civilian population in the United States was uh, starting to be very divided over the war. And to me, looking at this example from from a 1964 movie that just clearly laid out the benefits of disciplining yourself in conflict um, to to coin a phrase make order out of chaos um was jarring and um and poignant and um and again like any good piece of art does it artistically um illuminated what is yeah, a, a, a core principle, and to, to do that, it just—I'll um, I'll just give one example, and then I'll stop. I'll get off my soapbox for a little bit, but—and again, it's a bit of a spoiler. But the very final scene, when the Zulus have just been pounding the crap out of the British positions, and finally give their 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 whole the Zulus' whole plan comes to fruition, and they bull rush other British positions, and the British through their their the nature of their very structured very disciplined firing basically build their very small force into a machine into an absolute killing machine that just drops to a knee the ncos are just right on them saying fire but and then they and then drop and then the next line uh, rises up and they shoot while the others are reloading and the others rise up and shoot and they basically stack. And this is all, I'm not an officer, as you can tell. And I was an infantry, as you can tell. So all my verbiage is all fucked up here, but um, the, the way that they, they structured those cycles of lines to fire and the order and the discipline that when the officers just, you know, uh, uh, raising and lowering their swords to, so that the shooting is precise and that they just shred the Zulus in front of them is um I, I mean there's no other way to say it. it it was harshly poetically beautiful brilliant that you go oh my god uh how in god's name do you survive a situation like that that's how the discipline and the discipline no matter what that you truly have have made chaos your bitch uh, and i was like I, it, it blows me away every time i'm even now i'm going to blame a lot of my inarticulateness on my emotion because even just recalling it uh it just blows me away every time did that come across to you too charlie or is this a me thing so i i saw that in there but what impressed me more was the zulus discipline and motivation because these guys are advancing into the face of that and it's not like they'd never faced british rifle fire before they like we said before they just came from a big victory they've seen what those can do so i've got a spear and i got a cowhide shield and 
all around me are dudes that are getting just destroyed by these, are they Henry Martini rifles? I don't know. Right. Rifles. Yeah. And, but we get repulsed again and again and again, but we keep going and keep going and keep going. And for me, that was the, the interesting thing because I'll fight another guy with a rifle. If I got a rifle, if I got a spear, maybe I sneak away and live to fight another day. So I think that was pretty interesting dynamics on both sides. And one of the things I liked about the movie, Chris, is they didn't make the officers look like idiots because that's that's a yeah. convenient scapegoat in a lot of military movies. And is the officers look like idiots. I couldn't agree more. And more to the point, more than just not making them idiots, it gives a nuanced portrait of leadership. Um, and I, and that's a, that's a really important dynamic. I'll just set the scene, Charlie, and I'll let you talk about it because um, you know this world more than I do, God knows. So um, the way that the movie sets it up, the engineer officer, who's all just about building a bridge, um, is actually outranked and only by time and grade, but he is outranked by an infantry officer or maybe his cavalry, but anyway, uh, a combat arms officer, I guess, let's say, um, who happens to just be visiting his camp who, and the, that officer is a bit of a dilettante. He's um, it, for those that aren't aware, this was Michael Caine's very first movie role ever. The very first role he ever got. And he plays this very um, uh, upper-class, uh, well-heeled uh, aristocrat. Um, so again, somebody that would be easy to lampoon. And he comes in, and he's very much about the righteous fight, and and you know, kind of good old boy um, attitude. And he kind of looks down on the engineer officer. And when they have their dick measuring contest, he realizes he outranks him uh, by time and grade, and so he um, assumes command when the shit gets heavy and the way that they support each other and the way that the, the, the facades come down in that movie and they're weary together and they try to hand off command to each other because they're both like, this is not a position I want to be in. And then the way that they discipline their men and make decisions under fire is instructive. So anyway, uh, Charlie, I won't pontificate on it. Uh, with that being the scene, I'll let you, Talk about that dynamic. I really enjoyed that, Chris. And I, I think most officers have been in for a while can relate to that. You got a little food fight going on over who's in charge in any given situation. And then what I also liked was the interaction between the non-commissioned officers and the officers. You had good delineation of the, the way that it works largely still in the American army. You got NCOs doing NCO things, officers doing officer things, mutual respect. Everybody works together and you win. And I think that was a, a great dynamic, I think, is understated in that movie as well. And I think one of my favorite characters in there is, is the, the color sergeant going yes. around straightening the lines and talking about whether or not it's a miracle or if it's a miracle uh, because of the, the man with the gun out there on the range. So lots to like about that show from a leadership perspective. A hundred percent. I'm glad you brought that up. My favorite character in the whole movie is color sergeant Bourne. Um, who was played by a brilliant British actor who was in a lot of flicks. I just happened to like from that time period, the actor's name was Nigel green. Um, and he is the epitome of the British stiff upper lip NCO. And um, to the point of discipline, overcoming chaos, um, 
Color Sergeant Bourne embodies that in the movie. And I think those, to me, the, some of the moments that stand out is that uh, right when the Zulus are first attacking or about to attack and all the soldiers are scared and they're looking and just anticipating death. And he comes up and demands that one of the Welsh soldiers button his top button. And this soldier looks at him the way that the audience is thinking, and like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and Color Sergeant Bourne literally does not, and he's not insensitive. He's not a dick. He's, he just is the line. He is the line, that, and he is the standard. And he's, and, he, and he's a, now there's a good man, button your top button. You know, we always look the part. And, and it's funny because then you think about all those bullshit details that you're on or, <laughs> or greeting of the day or any of the horse shit that I personally didn't like in the military, um, but that you always reminded yourself is done for those reasons to instill discipline in the small things. So that when the big things happen, you're ready to act. And, and from my darkest days, I remember in, in a, one really miserable Thanksgiving, uh, I was waiting to go to um, AIT and I had to go to the hospital at Fort Leonard Wood to get a physical uh, firefighter physical to go to the firefighter, the DOD firefighter school. And so I was just in a hold and I had just gotten out of basic, but I couldn't go to AIT until I got this physical. And they just kept us waiting forever. And we were in these uh, barracks with um, plumbers and uh, other um, engineer types that were going through AIT, but their drill sergeants hated us. We were worthless to them. So they just put us on all these bullshit details. And I spent one Thanksgiving guarding one of the plumbers that had tried to go a wall and I had to be out there in class A's guarding him as he swept uh, all the leaves in front of the defect for 12 hours on a Thanksgiving. And that was my Thanksgiving. And I remember the whole time, uh, not the whole time that's over-exaggerating, but I remember multiple times during that 12 hour stretch thinking of color Sergeant Bourne and going, well, this is why you do it. Um, you, and, and I, I was such an idealist. I, I held to that when most other people would have been like, okay, I'll go fuck yourself. But for me, it's, it's funny because that actually meant a lot to me. And that always stood out as, um, as just a sterling example of an NCO that I was not, let me be clear. I, I, I make no pretense that that was like me, but I just thought, uh, the value of discipline that he embodies is remarkable. Yeah, I think that's a great example. While you were talking, Chris, I was thinking about a, a more modern example that we use here at West Point, a book called Black Hearts that I think you're probably familiar with. It's a book that is about a war story, a war crime carried out by yeah. members of the 101st. And we use it here at West Point in the officership capstone course as an example of how not to be a leader. And the reason I bring it up is because I was thinking about it when you're talking about button your top button. It seems so irrelevant in the moment because this dude could have a spear through his chest in a minute. You tell him to button up, but these little things when left undone over time can add up to a situation like you have in black hearts. So the little things do matter over time. You, you stay consistent. You do the little things right over time. You get the basics down. Normally the big things will, will come out. Okay. And of course the NCOs backbone of the army are those keepers of that standard. So I think that's a great example of a good portrayal of NCOs doing NCO things in that movie. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. I mean, even I, I just, uh, this is just me fanboying over the movie, but I always got a kick out of how Nigel green portrayed color Sergeant Bourne fighting. Everything was regimented even when he fights. So you see everybody else kind of flailing <laughs> with bayonets and all that. And his bayonets, his bayonet stabs are like very deliberate. And then 
it, you can tell everything is textbook like this. He, he literally fights the way it would be described in the manual. And I always got such a kick out of that. And I don't know if that was an acting choice by Nigel Green or if they uh, if, if Cyanfield, the director, told him to do it. But I always got such a kick out of that, that he literally is the standard embodied. Yeah, totally stiff upper lip on that guy. That's a good. Oh example. my god! So the other the other big component that I wanted to touch on. Um, did you ever? What was your takeaway on the Swedish missionaries? The uh, uh, that were in there. The um, uh, wits. Do you yeah, remember the ones, them? The ones that run around saying everybody's going to die. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I, I remember being very annoyed by that plot point. I'm like, okay, we get it. We get it. This guy's running around. He's an alarmist. Everyone's going to die. Uh, let's just move on. I guess I think in the film, if I remember correctly, they eventually left. Yeah. They're like, later, we're out. But I, I didn't understand. I was like, why? This this seems kind of weird. But I guess it's to help build tension. I guess there the wits did exist in real life, but I think the portrayal was, was exaggerated for dramatic effect in the movie. But again, when I was watching, I was like, what just, okay, let's, let's get back to some, some different plot that move this along a little bit. So that <laughs> so was my reaction. I, I loved the wits. I loved that they were in the movie and that that plot point was as large as it was. And I'll, I'll tell you why. And a lot of this, um, I, 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 I guess I've never said it like this before, but based on how the amount of shows we've done together, Charlie, and the and amount of times this has come up, I think the early stages of, of or that early 2000s and the political scene, especially domestically, really affected a lot of my outlook on things hmm. um, because I was being living in New York or in LA. Um, I was just awash in the anti-war. Yeah, I was surrounded by anti-war activists and and i saw a lot of extreme things from them and extreme points of view and it was the first time and nowadays it's kind of commonplace to hate the country or be disappointed with the country and talk openly about it but that was really the first time um that i remember seeing you know significant um protests really in as a new yorker since uh rodney king the rodney king riots actually led to the crown heights riots in new york city and i remember those well in the early nineties, but there hadn't been anything like that in a while. And the Iraq war brought it out. And I, I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again in, in 2004, I was walking home at, at a, after, uh, right before a graveyard shift. Um, and I was walking by uh, Madison square garden where the GOP convention was. And that was the first time I saw all these middle-class white kids throwing bottles down the street at uh, anybody going into the convention and running around. And when I later went to LA and I actually saw black block up front, up close and, and saw, you know, um, I guess what the forerunner of what ended up becoming Antifa and, and saw them, that was a bit different that they were organized and there was kind of an MO to how they did things. But this was a very, uh, emotional, um, reaction of something we talked about in the episode that aired last week which is the, the young men looking for a righteous fight. And um, I remember my mom actually saying at the time uh, she wasn't with me, but I remember uh, just seeing the, the temperature rise in New York city. I remember her at one point saying, Jesus Christ, these guys need a war to go to. And I was like, you know, there is a war going on that they could go to. Um, and, but again, to many New Yorkers, they just didn't even um, consider that anyway, long, long way of saying, to me, the Swedish missionaries meant that that plot point meant a lot to me, because that to me was 
um, the anti-war left that I was seeing. That was Code Pink. That was, um, I, I guess, in some respects, that was even Westboro Baptist Church. It was those that are so convinced of their righteousness, so convinced that they are on God's side, um, that they will cast aside those that clearly need them. These were soldiers that, you know, uh, 1880s British soldiers, they, a lot of them were looking, and even in the movie, they portray this, and, and I don't know if this was accurate, but in the movie, the way they portrayed is a lot of them would have, were open to talking to God and to praying because they knew they were about to be overrun. They needed spiritual support. And instead, what they were getting was political babble, and they were instead getting this anti-war sentiment um, by people that were well-intentioned, but naive and, um, and so reflexively, ideologically predisposed to peace at all costs that they could not um, stomach seeing even justified war. Um, and that, that resonated a lot for me in the early 2000s. Um, and, and in fact, I mean, led to me enlisting ultimately, but, uh, but that storyline always means a lot because it gets my blood up so much. I should also say, and this is one of the beautiful things about the movie is that it doesn't, it, it doesn't create shibboleths. It doesn't just create caricatures or people that do one thing and therefore are exactly what you would expect. So you have the Michael King guy who's upper class yet isn't just a, a toffee nosed get who everybody hates and you learn to hate. In fact, he's much more nuanced than that. Similarly, the missionaries um, are appalled by the savagery of the Zulu. And so they're, so they're neither here nor there. Like, I don't think, uh, I don't think a code pink person would necessarily relate to the Swedish missionaries because the Swedish missionaries are very Christian, very devout, yet also hypocritical because the father's a drunk. Um, yet are on the side of the West and believe that they that they have something to offer and are almost proselytizing imperialism, essentially. So, th- so there's they, they can't be they can't be immediately pigeonholed um, in today's terms, which I find refreshing, and that's why I always think of this movie as having an honest assessment. It's not necessarily accurate because there's a lot of cultural things that or historical things that aren't accurate, but. But it is an honest assessment of, from one point of view, the nuances that these people embody. And that's what the missionaries kind of meant to me. Yeah, I think if I were Michael Caine's character, I think it's uh, Lieutenant Bromhead was his name. Mm-hmm. If I was the the officer in charge, I'd be just as happy to see the backs of those guys walking off my, my fob there. If you're not going to fight and you're not going to help and you're going to tell everyone we're going to die, you're not a lot of good to me. It's and one of them, of course, is a woman that's very distracting to an all-male force, especially if she's a non-combatant. They're going to spend a lot of time trying to protect and worry about her when they need to be worrying about buttoning up their jacket and fight the Zulus. So, yeah, if you can hold a rifle, male or female, stand in the line, care for people, whatever you're going to do. If you're going to help us out, you're welcome here. Otherwise, I'd just assume not share my limited resources and have to worry about two more people I got to protect. So well, I was glad when they left. Yeah, and it's funny because you know last last episode we talked about um, Red Dawn, and about that romantic embrace of violence, and here this is a romantic embrace of discipline, 
And here, one of this, and the Swedish missionaries, and the way that uh, Lieutenant Bromhead interacts with them is a great example of that. Because as opposed to a romantic uh, version where he might go, where he might like look them in the eye, make them cower, curse them out, um, you know, show his alpha maleness or anything like that. Instead, he doesn't even respond to their berating and into their very personal accusations that you are leading men into, into their deaths. You are, this is going to be sin on your soul. You are sinning. And they're really coming down on him. He doesn't respond. And he and you can see that it's ripping him up inside to hear these things and to have his men hearing this. But he first tries to just separate them and segregate them. That doesn't work because they keep yelling at him. So finally, they take one of their precious horses or multiple of their horses, multiple precious horses that they have, and a wagon, and put them on it. And um, and and you know, and he's just very disciplined about saying, okay, well, you know, you'll travel on safely and and you and, and you it just doesn't let his emotions come into play i thought that was fascinating and again something that is so antithetical to most movies we see and to a lot of our cultural impetus that i, I was just I, that always stands out to me i'm just so impressed with that because that's definitely not nothing i can relate to in <laughs> as much as i wish yeah, you've got to imagine also this guy knows he's going to be attacked by superior forces, just overran into the British garrison. His men's morale is low, supplies were low, and now he's got to deal with this. So it's just pressure upon pressure for a, a relatively young leader in a situation like that. It's a great example of remaining cool under fire, dealing with civilians on the battlefield, which is something that we have to deal with almost every mission we ever do. And lots to learn from that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, um, yeah. And I, every time I see that scene, I'm like, man, I would have slapped the shit out of him. I'm like, and that's why I'm, <laughs> I might not have survived works drift. Like, you know, and that's, that's the interesting lesson. Um, or one of the interesting lessons there with that. What did you think about, um, the, the character of hook, uh, private Henry hook, who actually got a victorious cross and he was a, a kind of petty thief that was kind of de facto being held in jail. He was also a malingerer. So he was pretending he was more injured and sick than he was. And uh, just a near-to-well, but who comes through and acts heroically in the battle. What were your takeaways with him? Totally accurate portrayal of a U.S. Army spec four. That, <laughs> that, that, that dude is the leader of the E4 Mafia. Total shammer. Literally malingering. It's like, oh, God, I can't work. Getting out of everything. It was like, oh, we, we something to do is important. Let me step up now and fill it. So obviously the first time when I saw this movie, I was a kid, so I didn't have that realization, but thinking about it now, it's like, that's every spec for ever, like, you know, his love hate relationship with him. I also wondered about um, just the character trait. So he is the exact opposite of a color Sergeant Bourne. In fact, he and his NCO um, that are in the ward together, his NCO who really is sick is trying to still make him a soldier, but just can't function because he's so sick. Um, and so hook is the antithesis of that yet when the shit gets bad, that rebelliousness suddenly it becomes a virtue because when the building's on fire and everyone's evacuating, it's the rebel that dives through the flames, goes, no, fuck it. And drags his NCO to safety. Um, or that, you know, goes, yeah, the odds are against me and I'm, and we're being overrun, but is out there fighting um successfully you know to and, and actually lives through the battle 
uh, fighting off so many Zulus because as a rebel, he's used to the odds being against him. And it made me think of John McCain, you know, who by all accounts was, you know, a rebel and a prick and, uh, you know, crashed all those planes and all that. But that's the toughness, the mental toughness that will allow you to survive six years as a POW. Um, so I don't know. That was kind of my initial thought of that is kind of it, as much as they laud discipline in the movie, there's also an homage to the rebel and into the ne'er-do-well and how they can be weaponized for good. Absolutely. And I, I also got to say, though, when you were mentioning John McCain, I was thinking John McClane from that perennial Christmas classic Die Hard <laughs> was also a, a rebel who turned out to be OK. That's true. And, and, and yeah, and might have made a good presidential candidate as well. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for no, sure. You know, it, it, it's, it's funny because there there is that. Did you see that in your experience? I know I saw that a lot with. With I, I was always impressed with in, in a very perverse way with people that defied military authority um, and, and yeah, not always defying it in, in you know, momentous, significant ways, but just guys who like weren't playing the game. And I was like, God damn, to go against a big bureaucracy like that, that can fuck up your life and fuck up your save your, your money and fuck up your freedom and all that. Like, why would you do that? Um, but it seemed in my experience that those, that there was an element of that they had so inoculated themselves to authority as it were that if they weren't sociopaths and if they if it wasn't making them just you know absolute hell to anyone that ever would deal with them there could be value out of them if you can channel it correctly and there could be a way of squeezing some real virtue and some exceptional virtue out of them if it can be um corralled right did you see that as well yeah so i i think you know i, I came into the branch detail program so i started off in the infantry and one of the things my first platoon sergeant, Sergeant Ellery Edwards, taught me was that sometimes Joe is bored or needs a different challenge. So you got ones, you got some that are they're too extreme right off the bat. You get rid of them immediately. But some of your low-level troublemakers just need something in their lives. They maybe they need the dog piss smoked out of them to begin with. But you give them some responsibility, you give them some leadership, you give them high expectations, and normally people will rise to meet it. I see that here at the academy, too, in the classroom, is if you set high expectations, you give people the creativity, you give them clear standards, and most importantly, you have some accountability in there, they tend to step up. So again, with Hook there, his NCOs are doing all the right things. They see something in him. Because they could have, I mean, British Army in the 1800s, you could do all manner of things to do. I think you, they still had hangings back then if dude was bad right, enough. Right. It's cer- certainly floggings and all kind of other menial punishment. But their NCOs were working with the guy, working with him because they saw something in him. And then when they when they put him in a situation where he had to step up and lead, and he did it. And I've, I've seen that repeatedly over my career. And it doesn't always work. Some people are just dirtbags and you don't know it right away. But I think it's worth giving people the benefit of the doubt. So while holding him accountable for being a malinger and being kind of a, a screw off in the, in the movie, ultimately, because they were willing to work with him, he, and let's face it, self-interest, what's he going to do? He can't run. The Zulus right. are going to kill him. They're literally right. going to murder the guy. So, but that didn't force him to go back in and get his NCO out. That, that, that was the, 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 the antithesis of self-interest. Like, bro, you're going to get, you're going to catch on yeah. fire. If yeah. you go back in there, but he did it anyway, because someone saw a spark in him and 
when the the flames are going around on around him, literally he stepped up. And I've, I've seen that often over my career. You know, at some point I'd love to talk to uh, doc Wilkes about the movie. Cause I, I, when we were talking to him um, and, and you're talking about his book, uh, code red Fallujah. Um, and you know, he's talking about being uh, one of the only, or the only uh, doctor, you know, in Fallujah when Fallujah was happening. Um, I thought of the the surgeon who was in Zulu because um, that was because and, and and that sense of him, like literally he has no sidearm with him. He has no protection. He's just literally just trying to treat. There's so many guys he has to treat and he's treating them that he has somebody there who like a wounded soldier. He just says it, where he just points at him and says, shoot. And the guy just shoots and kills the guy that's about to kill him. And then he's <laughs> screaming at the officers when they come in. And going, you butchers, you're just, you know, these men are coming in and because he's just overworked and stressed out and, and, um, but, you know, doing a noble job. Uh, I, I need to ask Doc Wilkes at some point <laughs> if he ever felt like that or if he's seen the movie and could relate. But that, uh, that to me, uh, I, there's, there's a part of me that thinks that's almost the, I don't want to say desired end state of a military doctor, but it, it, you're definitely operating kind of like, you know, if you're a ranger, you, you, you kind of aspire to some degree of black Hawk down. I, I think if you're a military surgeon, you know, there's some part of you that's like, now that's, you know, that's the shit right there. That that's what you're ultimately here for, you know? So it's funny. You mentioned that I, my wife's best friend's husband is a doctor and we were talking to them years ago about portrayals in the military and, uh, my deep dislike of movies like Hurt Locker and things which we've discussed. I'm sure that'll come up on the show later. And we watch a lot of Law and Order and we're, yeah, you know, we're sure that that's exactly what right. my wife's best friend experiences in her job as a lawyer. And we were talking about portrayals of doctors and he says, no, it's actually more like Scrubs, the TV series. Right. <laughs> like, All right. That's good to know. That's good to know. But I'm glad that Zulu got this one kind of right from the military perspective. And I, I think that's probably one of the reasons you like it so much. I think so. Uh, the only last scene I wanted to, I wanted to talk about and just throw out there was, do you remember the singing scene when they start singing, yeah. when the Welsh soldiers yeah. start singing? Yep. It was that, that was a response, right? To the, the yeah. Zulus. Yeah. yeah. And certainly, I mean, we have a lot of great examples of that in American military history that have been talked about. And even the Marines laughing, I think it, what was a Hill? I forget what the number was, but Hill something in Vietnam and the VC had surrounded them and were ma- and were making fun and the Marines just started laughing spontaneously, even though they were about to be overrun. Um, but but um yeah, that that scene where the where the Welshman starts singing this super, I mean, to a 2021 ear, a super square hymn, essentially, um, in response to the Zulu's war cries, which I think most vets when we hear the Zulu war cry, we're like, wait, how'd that go? Like, let me remember that. Um, nobody's remembering, you know, nobody's thinking of the Welsh hymn to sing, but God damn is that British and, and just their staunch belief in, in uh, all things British in the face of impending doom. I don't know. It, something about it, it. It's kind of a Lord of the Rings ish moment to me. It's just, Oh my God, the, the epic battle that's about to happen. And just, it, it, it just gets me emotional. I don't know when I hear that, them start to sing and, and that defiant song it's uh it's so square but but for some reason it works <laughs> well a couple of things there so first of all i think uh, i think that part of 
the Lord of the Rings movies was inspired by this. The Battle of Helm's Deep, uh, I think, uh, was specifically modeled on Zulu, the movie. And I think the power of singing is such a unifying thing. This is like, this is what we do. We sing and you feel the power of everyone singing around you, especially if people know the words. It's, it's uh, what a great morale lifter. And I think that the, the British in particular, a lot of European armies do more singing than we do in, in America. We have chants, we do things like that, but uh, we don't typically do that in battle. And I, I can't think of any examples I was and trying yeah, recently. I, I know once I said that, I was like, what am I talking about? And I was like, and, and then I realized, I, I think I was talking about just the Marines laughing, which obviously is not a song, well, and, <laughs> but I'm trying to think if there was something else, because I don't know, that might be a show alibi one where I, uh, if I even remember it, or if I go, yeah, I don't know what I was saying when I said that. Well, I can think of a couple of examples, like saying the, the range of Creed, uh, we did that a, a lot downrange with the, the task force and they lost somebody. Obviously, I'm not a ranger, but I know most of the words. So I heard it so often, so I'll say that with him as a, as kind of a, a comradely thing. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of things like that that we do. We just don't sing a whole bunch. Although, um, you know, Army Navy game, it'll it'll have been it'll have been over by the time this airs is happening this weekend. And the tradition is afterwards that the two teams sing their alma maters. And you always want to sing second because that means you won. So, <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, so I I'll think be, I'll, I'll be thinking about this show uh, this weekend when, <laughs> when you're when watching the game. Watch. Yes, right. <laughs> well, I think so. I think there's also something to uh, to be said for a, it's it's a place in the way this is framed in the movie. It's one place where they let emotion out when everything else is bottled up and disciplined. It's the one acceptable safety valve that you can let let out some emotion um, and, and maybe that serves a disciplinary purpose as well, because it's just, Hey, let's give them one channel to, to emote. And it's the singing and that also happens to unify everybody. I don't know. I'm, I, I don't want to overthink it, but I kind of do want to overthink it, I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, that that's what comes to my mind. I do. You know, it's funny. I was, the other thing I was thinking about songs, the, this is so hokey. But when I went through a uh, safari with a uh, 19th group where they first vet you to go into the national guard uh-huh. um, teams. Um, and I did, th- and, and I, when I did it, uh, which is years and years and years ago, um, it was a one day event, but it was, you know, obviously a really long day and they put you through a lot of stuff, but I remember uh, the ballad of the green beret went through my head nonstop on that ruck yeah. march. Um, and it, 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 it just couldn't, cause I was just like, oh, this is fucking cool. And then, um, and then I just couldn't stop having it in my head the entire time. And, uh, I think I will always associate that with bloody boots at the end of that rough march. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure. But, um, but yeah, outside of that, I think I was talking out of my ass when I said there were a lot of examples of singing that went through our military history. I don't, I don't, I don't think there are, I guess. Well, um, it's just, and not, I think. If you expand that a little bit, there are plenty of examples. Like I remember doing the Night Stalker Creed lots of times when I was in the 160th. And then for me, it has nothing to do with the military, but I I was normally pretty scared jumping out of the aircraft. So uh, I had the the Dune passage about fear is the mind killer. I had that memorized. I'd say that to myself. Huh. And you can imagine the power of 
if you had everybody in the plane doing that right before you jumped, I guess we didn't, we never did that. A, you couldn't hear anybody. And B, <laughs> right. right. Nobody else was as scared as me, I guess. Um, so something like that, I think it, it can be indeed very useful. And I've heard, I've heard of people doing the quote from the 13th warrior about, you know, low do there, do I hear my, see my father? I mean, that's, that's pretty inspiring that, that quote from that movie. Um, but yeah, I guess the, the, the quote that I heard the most on the fob uh, in the rear with the gear as the Intel guy was, do you want to go to Burger King? Was, let's head to green beans. That was, that was kind of our mantra. Is, that, green, that beans, is, green beans, green beans. That is truly an awe-inspiring and confidence building <laughs> quote that just gets the blood up. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's there. There's moments like that. I don't know. I guess I have a little bit of envy at the end of the movie where I'm like, Man, that's a pretty fucking cool history. Not that the yeah. American military history isn't cool, but, but there's something about the Brits where they really do honor tradition in such a um, in such an organic way. I mean, for us, when we do it, it, you're very aware that, yeah, this is the military, nothing else. But I'm sure you went to a, a poppy ceremony on the 11th when you were overseas, didn't you? Yeah. And when the, yeah. when the Brits would do that, and it's just like the fact that that's baked into their just Yep, this is not even their military tradition, but just the tradition of them as a country, I think is very cool. Same thing with Anzac Day. Yeah. And yeah. what's also interesting, Chris, and you know this, of course, is that their regimental system, like you can be in a, in a unit your entire career, which most of us will never serve in the same unit twice. And we'll be all around the country. Those guys are like their regimental headquarters is in X town and they will go there the rest of their career and they'll be in the same officer's mess their entire career so yeah you get really tight and you have ceremonies where you celebrate this so whatever you know company of foot was in this movie i bet they still celebrate this battle yeah and i bet they still have stuff from it they can bring out relics and say this spear was seized after this battle or this rifle or this hat or whatever so yeah they they have there's a lot to like about that type of system yeah, I mean it's it's funny when you when you have a junior officer come up and go, you know, and talk about your uh guide on and you know the streamers and all that. It's like for me as an American enlisted soldier, that's the time for me to roll my eyes. But I I get the feeling, I'm sure that happens in the British army as well, but I get the feeling that with the Brits there's less of that. And that there's kind of like, "Oh yeah, no, fuck yeah, this is you're very much tied up in, in that kind of pomp and circumstance because there is so much history as opposed to, um, you know, let's say a firefighter detachment. <laughs> um, just as an example. Um, all right. Well, cool. Is there anything else we need to talk about with uh, with Zulu? Any other points you want to raise? No, I think it's a great movie. And I think it's also useful for people who might be just starting out to see the good relationship between officers, NCOs, and and enlisted men in a good context like that dealing with civilians on the battlefield. So I think it's worth watching for anybody, no matter where they are militarily. I could not agree more. I couldn't agree more. There's, there's, um, we'll see if we do more of these movies because there are other ones that, that also, I think, illustrate fascinating points. I'm sure you have a whole laundry list of movies as well, but this one, yeah, I, I, I'm not gonna lie. I, I had my six-year-old watch it, and um, actually, I had he was watch, he watched it for the first time when he was four, and it became his favorite movie, mostly because of the battles. I'm sure the lessons are not are totally lost on him at this point, but um, I take it as a gateway drug. You know, it'll 
grow over time. And when he's older, he'll go back to it and go, oh, shit. Wow. That's actually holds up for a whole bunch of other reasons as well. Yeah, I do. Well, I do like those lessons. Well, I had my girls watch Schindler's List and just to show them it's like, oh, hey, this, this I know, I know. Wow. And uh, it went over a lot better with Emily, my oldest, than Shannon, my youngest. Uh, Shannon, Shannon could make it through because she was considerably younger and a lot more sensitive. Well, yeah, when but was this? When did they watch the, it? Last time we were stationed here. So she, little Shannon was okay. probably nine. Emily's in her early teens. But just an example of what could happen if you don't protect your rights, if you let the government take guns away from you, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a good example uh, of things to have people watch that's generally historically accurate. And at the end of the day, there are good people in the world. It's not all bad. You got bad people doing things, but you also have some good people out there. You need to be a good person, protect yourself and people around you. So I think there's a lot to learn about that movie, too, even though it doesn't have a direct consistent military theme to it i'm not saying this to extend the length of this episode um, or take us necessarily down another rabbit hole but i will just say it has occurred to me more than a few times that uh pineapple save our allies all that stuff is a modern day schindler's list activity um and just and and uh you know not that oscar schindler was you know, fishing for a Spielberg movie when he was, you know, doing all that stuff. But, but I think that that degree of, of thanklessness um, of diving into something. Um, I mean, conviction alone isn't enough. I was going to say out of conviction, but conviction alone is not necessarily a virtue because I mean, Hitler was very convinced he was doing the right thing. So Absolutely. You, need, you need a lot more than conviction, but I think when all that moral criteria line up and, and you are that committed, um, I mean, there's a special place in heaven for people like that. I think, I think that's, that's some thankless work. And that's, uh, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll dovetail that into my, uh, my shout out, um, to, to those organizations. Cause I, I, I know there's a lot of people out there, not a lot, not nearly enough, but certainly still a lot of people that are abbreviating their holidays and working, um, in every spare minute to try to help, um, and not just people in Afghanistan, but specifically um, the soldiers we fought with in Afghanistan and um, that are over there and winter's coming. And, uh, and now that this episode's airing, winter will be here at that point. Yep. And um, they are in a rough, rough situation right now. And supplies are not you know, there and money's not there. And, um, you know, America, you know, the American public. Uh, unsurprisingly and and i don't say this is a knock on them but as with anybody you only have limited bandwidth and limited attention span and america's you know forgotten about it and um we'll remember we'll remember in time um when when some bad shit follows us but um for now yeah i think a lot of people are putting that in a rearview mirror anyway that's that's where oscar schindler took me so um i'll blame that on you for bringing that up I, I think it's worth talking about. I think we should do a show on it. I think between the two of us, we know enough people that are involved in it. You were involved personally. I, I was not involved at all, but I know plenty of folks. I think we should get, get some guys on a show. Yeah, we should. We should do a show on it. Um, yeah. Like everything else, we'll, we'll figure out a time and a place to plan that out, which, which often is more exhausting than doing the show itself. But, sure. uh, but yeah, no, for sure. Uh, Charlie, uh, let's give, because I think this is going to air on or around new year's mm-hmm. um 
so maybe uh, let's do some some New Year's ish type sentimental activities. Anything, any the shouts yeah. out that you want to give? Or- yeah, I got a, I got a couple of things. So we we wrote an article, uh, New Year's resolutions for veterans, several years ago. I think it was either me or someone with a writing style similar to mine wrote an article about New Year's resolutions for vets. That's going to re-air on the Havoc Journal. I encourage people to check it out. Also, for vets and anyone in the audience, just do one good thing for yourself in this new year something you've been putting off, something you've been thinking about. It's okay to take care of yourself. If you need help, ask for it. If something's wrong with you, go get it fixed. If you need to do something, just do it. Do one thing for yourself in the coming year to make yourself better because America still needs you. So I hope that the veteran community in particular and the larger service community, including first responders and contractors that work for the government, I hope they listen to this. I hope they think about it. As you know, Chris, the holidays is often a time for increased depression and loneliness and sadness. And I hope the vets listening to this realize they're not alone. They still matter. America still needs you. You just need to find your second mission. Go out and get it. So thanks for letting me have the platform to say that, Chris. No, a hundred percent. And I'm going to dovetail. I'm going to echo the same sentiments. Um, and I'm going to do it by giving you a, another shout out, Charlie. Um, you know, you you conceptualized. Um, a hell of an organization with second mission. And I love what it stands for. And that it is summed up by the name that it is that second mission for vets. And I think there's been a part of my brain that has embraced a second mission sometimes. And there's a part of my brain that's like, Oh, don't even mention the word mission. Um, again, you know, <laughs> but I, but I think, um, but I, I think there's no two ways about it. I think there's a I, I, you know, the, the funny thing about, I, I, if you'll let me pontificate for one second, there's a, it's a funny thing with the word and the meaning of veterans, because it's about stuff in the past. It means that you did some stuff in the past. It's not necessarily a word that reflects what you're doing now. Mm. And I think there's something to be said for, especially as he's brought up in this, the holiday season when depression looms and, and kind of. Even I don't know about you, but I, I think even for me, with all the things I have to be grateful for, there's moments where it peaks its head up and and sees if I want to embrace it and all that. And for me, I and what's always been helpful is to be in the now and to be in the present and to be forward looking. And the danger I think with veterans is that we, by the nature of being using the the nomenclature veteran we look backwards. We look back at what we did. And I think what I love about Second Mission and your organization is that you are a veterans organization that is actively wrenching people's perspective to the present and to the future um, and not and, and you're honoring the past by giving you future opportunities, but not by um, wallowing in the past to the point of paralysis. And I think that's incredibly noble, and um, and and I think that gives a good template for action for anyone, any vet that's feeling depressed in the holiday season. That you are hardly washed up, used. Uh, your life is not in your rearview mirror. Your life is now, and your life is in front of you. That's right. I couldn't express it better myself, Chris. So we're all in this together. You still got more to give. You still got more to get out of life and you got to go do it. 
and programs like Vet Rep, uh, Havoc Journal, Second Mission, numerous others, too many for us to name, are here for vets to do it. So get out there and do it. No one's going to come to you. No one came to you in the Army and said, hey, you've got to do this or pulling you along. You had people to help you do it, but at the end of the day, you still had to make it a formation. You still had to put on a uniform. You still had to sign the dotted line. So do something good for yourself Do and carry it out in a positive way. And I think that's the message of Second Mission. That's the message of Havoc Journal, certainly, and Vet Rep, same thing. There's more that you can do. You're not done yet, so go out and do it, Vets. I'll never forget the most washed up uh, soldier in their own minds that I ever met was um, one of my uh, junior enlisted guys uh, when, when I was in my first MOS as, as a firefighter. And he came to me and he said, hey, man, he's like, you know, you're getting 300s on your PT test and everything like that. And, and I don't know how you do it at 32. Um, he's like, he's like, I'm, I'm 27 and I'm, I'm done. I'm washed up and, and, uh, you know, and, and I look around and I, I, I can't imagine, you know, being physically fit. And I was like, okay, you're, you're getting like two nineties on your PT test right now. <laughs> you're 27 motherfucker. You're 27. Like, and, and he's like, well, I guess, I mean, if somebody like you, that's 32 can still do it, I guess I can. I'm like, God damn. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, holy shit. I'm like, seriously. Like, um, and, uh, and it's funny that it, it, it civilian example that comes to my mind is I had a friend who, uh, who would help, um, a lot of people and, and help a lot of young women. And she got a call from, um, one young woman, um, who said, uh, you know, I, I really, really wish I could learn a, a foreign language, but it's just too late for me to, to learn. And, and I said, well, how old was the woman? She said, 22. And uh, it's, no. it's weird. It's weird. The prisons we put on ourselves where we think, oh yeah, I'm done. I'm washed up. I, it's all over for me now, you know? Um, and it's like, dude, it's all in your fucking mind, man. It, 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 it it's it, the future is in front of you. And it, you think of that Lord of the Rings line, consider we've had numerous Lord of the Rings references already in this episode, but where, uh, when the King is under that spell where Theoden, the, 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 uh, uh the King of Rohan is under that spell. And then when he comes out of it and Aragorn says, you know, you'll regain your strength. Uh, you know, uh, perhaps you'll regain your strength. If you're, if you wrap your hand around a sword, yep. it's like, you need that purpose. You need that mission to go on and son of a bitch, you got it in you and, and you'll right. shuck the rest of it because it's mesmerism. It's just a mesmeric, I, a belief that's trying to hold you and say that you're done or that you have nothing left to offer, or there's some survivor guilt that you owe something to, to some, to, you know, you owe somebody something in a way that can only be paid by your inaction. Um, it, that's just mesmerism and, and you can beat that. You can shuck that. That's right. And what, what's the old saying, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Yeah. And yeah. right now too many vets think they can't or they shouldn't, or they won't. And I think the country needs them. And I think they need to wake up to that fact. A hundred percent. And I almost, I almost want to be, I don't know if this would come off as controversial, but I almost want to be disrespectful of the term veteran for those in those people's minds, like big fucking deal. Get over yourself. Got it. You did something cool, man. Bitchin. What have you done for us lately? What are you doing now? What are you doing going forward? You know, um, anyway, not to put too fine a point on it, but, uh, sometimes we just need to be shaken out of a stupor. And, um, if that does it great. And if not, I love you anyway. (laughs) <laughs> all right brother listen All right. Uh, this has been fun uh, 
to everyone listening, uh, if you haven't subscribed, do so. If you're on iTunes, five-star review. Show notes will be at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com or on my accompanying article at Havoc Journal or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Charlie and I will put out any alibis that we have, if we have them, if there's something we misstated, misremembered, anything else. Kick off your new year with Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which, full disclosure, is my nonprofit. If you want to hear me conduct one-on-one long-form interviews with veterans of the military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, or DOD contractors who are artists, please consider adding the Savage Wonder podcast to your queue. You can always find it on any platform, any podcast platform out there, or you can go right to the source at savagewonder.podbean.com. Again, that's savagewonder.podbean.com. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Charlie Faint, and we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos. And we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc.